Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column here, here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly gaze into the reassuringly troubled crystal ball of Brexit. This week, we'll be looking back at the EU's Brussels summit, at which Brexit played almost no part whatsoever, and forward to the Cabinet's Checkers Away Day, at which it will be the only subject of conversation. We'll debate whether or not the Prime Minister may have a looming political crisis on her hands, wonder what's in the government's long-awaited Brexit white paper, and with summer recesses in Brussels and Westminster a little over a fortnight away, ponder what might happen over the next few weeks. In fact, if you take all those various breaks and holidays into account, there are now, it seems, just about six working weeks left in which to negotiate Brexit. So you'd have to hope that something will start happening sooner rather than later. Anyway, with me to discuss all this are Jennifer Rankin, The Guardian's Brussels correspondent, and someone who can tell a Max Fack from A Fundamental Freedom at 40 Paces, plus Guardian columnist Raphael Baer, who's forgotten more about the way Westminster works than most people will ever know. Welcome to both of you. Um, let's kick off with the summit, shall we? Jennifer, I mean, this time the Europeans were really fairly blunt, weren't they? Jean-Claude Juncker, the Commission president, made it very clear. Um, he said, we cannot go on living with a split cabinet. Our British friends have to say what they want. Uh, Leo Varadkar, the Irish leader, also helpfully pointing out that the UK really couldn't expect a relationship of equals after Brexit. Uh, yeah, he made that very plain. We're 27 member states. The EU is one country. We're 500 million people. The UK is 60 million. That basic fact needs to be realised. And they also issued a grave warning of the threat of the UK leaving the bloc on the 29th of March next year without a deal or a transition period agreed. Was it all as bad tempered as it sounded? Is patience really beginning to run thin? Yes, well, I think patience is is definitely running out. 
I mean, if, if we're sitting in Pedant's Corner, which we often are, we could fault um, Leo Varadkar's um, population figure <laughs> slightly. He, he's forgotten to, um, to to minus the UK population. But I think that the, the general point still stands that what he, the point he's really getting across is that EU will defend its member states. So a country of, um, of less than 5 million people, which Ireland is, is going to weigh more than, uh, than a country that's decided to leave the EU. And, uh, and that's the message that is coming through loud and clear and, and came through on that summit as well. I think it's, it's worth to add the context that the Brexit discussion at the summit came after a very long and difficult debate on migration, which went all through the night until 4.30 in the morning. So it might be a bit of an exaggeration to say that Brexit is a welcome distraction, because it's certainly not welcome, but it is at least something that the EU's 27 leaders can, for the moment, agree on. And it's something that's sort of relatively, relatively easy to unite the bloc on. So I, I wouldn't exactly say... Well, I'd say bad-tempered, uh, time is certainly running out and patience is, is running out. But I, I don't think it, it's certainly not something that's causing the most angst in the EU at the moment. No, for sure. But I mean, but they were, I mean, they were certainly plainer spoken. Yes, there were some, some very blunt warnings mm. and, and really uh, Donald Tusk laying it on the line um, at the press conference saying it's time for the UK to put its cards on the table and seeing that also in, in the, the diplomatic language of the, the communique, the UK has asked to come up with realistic and workable proposals and I think this just show the impatience that so far that after two years after the referendum, these workable and realistic proposals from the EU's point of view just simply don't exist. Mm. Mm. I think that's a that's a very important distinction there in terms of what what is workable from the EU's point of view. I mean, I think that you know, the, the UK sort of official side would say, well, we've you know, we've sort of told you what we want. It's just not available. It's not on offer. Yeah. So, you know, you had to remember at the beginning of the year, there was this the sort of the three baskets model where you sort of divide the single market up into uh, different sort of uh, silos, some of which the UK would be in, some of which mm. it wouldn't be. And that got kicked into touch. Um, the various sort of customs proposals, the customs partnership has already been shot down preemptively. This idea that the UK might want to sort of take the Aki, be part of the single market for goods, but mm. carve out special exceptions for services. That's basically been preemptively killed. So it's not exactly that the UK hasn't said what it wants. It's just that what it wants doesn't seem to tally with an EU 27 collective understanding of how their interests are protected. And those interests are protected by maintaining entirely the integrity of the single of the common market. And as Jennifer said, upholding solidarity at 27, Mm. which means putting Irish interests as a member state ahead of any perceived third country, even if it's a big, powerful one like the UK. Yeah, exactly. And Raphael, there there was one area where 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 Britain apparently at least still feels that it might have some some leverage, which is security. And it was quite striking. I thought that, you know, she the Theresa May clearly chose to fight back, really, with with a warning that EU leaders intransigence as she said, was putting citizens' lives at risk by jeopardising any sort of form of information sharing or advanced information sharing on security. That didn't seem to go down too well. I mean, I, I'm just wondering, you, you, you wrote this week about how pro-European liberals feel about Brexit and the, the kind of the would-be EU wreckers in Britain in, a, you know, in, in, in the age of Trump. Is it wise, I mean, just tactically for the Prime Minister sort of to go on the attack 
in these circumstances? Uh, the short answer is no, but it is, it's a very interesting kind of paradox. In, it is definitely true that, or it certainly was definitely true at the beginning of the process, that the UK's security and intelligence and military capability was a card in the negotiations. Obviously, strategically, other European countries, I mean, France is a very big military power uh, you know, so by European standards. Uh, Germany, for all complicated historical mm. reasons, squeamish about military power. There really isn't another equivalent one. And so actually the UK security capability does weigh in in the negotiations, but it's only a card if you don't play it. So to speak, <laughs> okay, because yes. um, it's sort of it's known and understood in the background. But the moment the UK basically does this slightly kind of mafiosi, that's a nice continent you've got there. It'd be a shame if anything were to happen to it. Yeah. Kind of you know, threatening to withhold its capability. Then it, it really aggravates that sense uh, among the other 27 that really the UK is this, is this slightly kind of maverick, Trumpian, unreliable partner, not mm. necessarily on the side of Europe in a broader in the broader sense. Um, and, and actually, this was played out right at the very beginning of the process in the letter that, that was sent activating Article 50. If you remember, there was a little paragraph in mm. there, um, more or less making that implicit threat saying, you know, we care about security, we think you do too. Uh, so, you know, just yeah. watch it. And the, the the prime minister was was very strongly recommended not to do that, and it is now recommended, or, or at least not to link it, not to, to link it that yeah. explicitly exactly. Mm. And this is now it was then understood very quickly to have been a mistake to take that tone. And I think it's just sort of desperation now that that tone's crept back into it. It's not a strategic way to handle it at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's move on. Showdown at Checkers this week, if you believe the hype at least, and it's true, isn't it? I think that in, you know, in in a process that has known a great many crunch moments, this one feels somehow a little bit crunchier than than most. May gathers her whole cabinet at her country retreat on Friday to try to thrash out some kind of common vision of the future relationship between uh, the EU and the UK after Brexit. All the signs are it's not really going to be a walk in the park. Jennifer, in an ideal world, what would Brussels like to see come out of this meeting? Well, it, it does come back to to this phrase of realistic and, and workable proposals. I think that's the key thing that's uh, that's come out of this recent summit. And the, the the feeling here is that for a long time the UK has been saying what it would like from Brexit, but its own red lines are in contradiction with its with its actions. So, for example, the, the government will say, "Well, we, we want we're going to leave the customs union," and people are on on this side will say, "Well, hang on a second, where are all your lorry car parks at, at your ports? Where are all the new customs?" officers that are going to be in place. Uh, equally, the UK will say, well, we're leaving the single market, but actually we'd really like to be in the EU agency for aviation and, and then for medicines as well. And people say here, well, hang on a second, that's, that's not really what we have in mind when we talk about leaving the single market. So there's this consistent sense from the EU 27 that the UK position is full of contradictions and that they want to have everything all at once. The, the have your cake and eat it model is, is the phrase um, that everyone loves now goes. And uh, so that's that's what the that's what Brussels really wants to see an end to. They want uh, the UK to to face up to the consequences of the decision to leave. That's how it's be, it's seen here that the UK government has so far failed to do that. And what they're afraid of is that this meeting in Chequers is again going to result in some kind of ambiguous. Uh, fudgy compromise to keep the government together but isn't going to actually move the negotiations forward so there's a sense that Theresa May is all all tacked 
tactics and no strategy, that she's very good at surviving from one day to the next, but she doesn't really know how she's going to, to negotiate her, her way to, to a, a Brexit deal. And the fear for people here is that then you have a lost summer, that nothing happens, that the negotiations are, continue to, to stall, and then you're in a very risky position in the autumn, and that raises the chance of uh, a no deal. Exactly. Things start to get really very tight indeed. Um, Raphael, I mean, is there is there any way of bridging this divide between the cabinet leavers and remainers? I mean, you know, we, we've heard talk this week of Michael Gove tearing up customs union papers and Jacob Rees-Mogg practically giving May her orders in the in the Telegraph just this morning, businesses increasingly making their voices heard. I mean, the pressure is really, I mean, it's a, it's a pressure cooker in there, isn't it? it I mean, it, it is. And as, but as you say, I mean, we have sort of been through this, the, the sort of pantomime before in the run up to these sorts of decisions. And interestingly, what has tended to happen is the levers get very frenzied and agitated and say, you absolutely mustn't compromise on X, Y and Z. And actually, they sort of do, they fold eventually. May has called their bluff quite a lot. I mean, going back to sort of November, December, or even earlier, last summer, when they were, absolutely there should be no money at all paid to the EU. There should be, you know, there are all sorts of things that, that actually the Leavers have compromised mm. on. Now, it has been sort of suggested, and I've heard it from ministers, that May's strategy is exactly to game that, to just keep just nudging it forward one day at a time um, one day at a time uh, and yeah the, the the comparison that's used is sort of boiling the frog you know if you put mm. a frog in water and turn the temperature up gradually it doesn't notice until it's boiled uh, doesn't leap out another one that's used is, is the sort of the rope dope you know muhammad ali basically going to the ropes and letting george foreman hit mm. him until he was exhausted and then in sort of the eighth ninth tenth round coming out and knocking him out i mean theresa may is no cassius clay that's for sure but there is a sense that if theresa may can just sort of keep stringing the levers along Mm. and then taking them, drawing them into little compromises here and there, uh, eventually, before you know it, they've got a choice between a soft Brexit or possibly no Brexit at all. And they'll just be so exhausted, they'll just sign up to anything and then hope to try and you know mm. correct it or dot the I's and cross the T's after next March. Uh, the, the, but the problem is, ultimately, you do come to the, the point where you have to decide whether or not you're taking the acquis, uh, whether or not you're you know a rule taker in the single yeah, market right, yeah. or, or not, well, and whether you actually well, have... Whether you're Norway or Canada or exactly, plus Norway or minus Canada. or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the bottom line. And you get this strong feeling that actually Theresa May has essentially internalised the economic argument for Norway, but cannot see a political way beyond Canada. And so there is a crisis. There is going to be a political crisis in this country over that question. I think it's almost certain. And, and certainly, surely, when you get also to the parliamentary party, isn't it? I mean, it, there was just another letter over the weekend, a classic one of these sort of shackles to the EU type letters uh, signed by Andrea Jenkins. And I, I think nearly 40 sort of hardline backbenchers. I mean, really insisting that Theresa May stick to red lines that if she did would would guarantee a no deal, a, a, a catastrophic kind of crashing out. I mean, how a there is no mollifying these people, is there? Uh, no. Uh, and w- the question, what it really comes down to is how many of those people actually are so fundamentalist in this, so radicalised that actually they would bring either the government, br- down. Br- either bring yeah. the government down or genuinely take the UK into a no deal scenario, which actually is quite a serious thing to do. I mean, they talk about it very gamely. Uh, but actually, in reality, when that's when you're really confronting that, that, that prospect how many of them would actually peel off more into what we understand to be the kind of Michael Gove position, which is a little bit more just basically get anything, put it in a box, stick a ribbon on it, call it Brexit, and then worry about the details afterwards. That I think that position has a lot more support in the Parliamentary Conservative Party than is generally advertised. Hmm. That's interesting. But, sorry, one other yeah. important point in this. 
the problem that Theresa May has is Labour will almost certainly have to vote against any deal politically. They cannot be seen to just sort of nod through a Tory Brexit. They are the opposition. They are the opposition, ultimately. And and Jeremy Corbyn is coming under so much pressure now for being a bit too Brexity. I think Labour will vote against the deal. So Theresa May, she really does need those those 40 Mm. to 50 MPs. So they do actually have a lot of leverage. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Jennifer, now one thing the the Cabinet is supposed to sign off on at Chequers is, of course, the government's famous Brexit white paper. Now, you wrote about that this this week. Brussels apparently has had a sight of it, or at least of an early draft. Nobody was too impressed, were they? Leah Varadkar again was very clear uh, during the summit, I think, wasn't he? He basically said whatever the government comes up with, it really has to offer what he called new thinking. But it doesn't seem to, does it, at the moment at least? Yes, that's right. And people who here in Brussels who have seen drafts, as you say, have not been impressed by what they've seen. They they think it all amounts to classic UK cherry picking. This idea that Raphael mentioned earlier that the UK could stay in a, in a single market for goods while having more flexibility and freedom on on services, but also restrictions on free movement of people. And it, it really comes back to this fundamental question for the EU. It's almost like the the, the Brexit equivalent of splitting the atom. Can you can you have uh, free movement of goods and services without having, say, free movement of people. And the, the EU has said all along that's, that's just not possible. And, the, and Michel Barnier has been observing this line very strictly. And so far, he's been backed up by all the member states. But I think it is worth pointing out again that the member states haven't really had to confront um, a UK proposal. So it hasn't really been a, a source of division for them. And I think for the EU, a soft Brexit will be much, much harder to negotiate. A hard Brexit is very easy. No Brexit is, is, very, is, is easy as well. They might be both, of course, politically deeply unpalatable for, for the EU, but they're much simpler to negotiate, whereas negotiating a soft Brexit halfway house agreement is, is much harder, which is why I think the, so far Barnier has really wanted to stress to the UK that there are only these options. It's either Canada or Norway, and, and there, there isn't another off-the-shelf model to be invented. And the British government will keep trying to, to invent some sort of new model and it may be that further along the line, there will be the EU countries will look at this more closely. But I don't think this is something that's going to emerge before Brexit Day. I think this will really be a question that has to be gone into in, in much more detail after Brexit has happened and the expectations for the trade deal or a, prelim- a preliminary trade deal that will emerge in the autumn really have to be very limited. Raphael, any thoughts on this famous doc? I mean, we've been waiting for it for long enough, haven't we? And any thoughts on what it might? Well, certainly the last thing I heard from within Whitehall was uh, that it would be that it, uh, sort of disappointing and unremarkable for <laughs> you know, those who are expecting something Kel interesting. Um, uh, and, and, and as Jennifer said, that you know, the, 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 the most dynamic movement in the UK position does appear to be this this idea that that seems to be based quite heavily on on at least a sort of a landing zone that was first identified by Ivan Rogers, the mm. UK's former um, ambassador to Brussels, uh, uh, who who resigned last year, mm. um, uh, just before he was yeah, pushed, and, and exactly, <laughs> um, and that the, uh, the the sticking point is is dividing the four freedoms, um, but also I think Jennifer makes a very good point, and actually. The UK is a very special case. It's a very big country. It's a big market for the EU. Some of those arguments that the levers brought about where the UK has notional leverage, and going back to the conversation we were having earlier about security mm. as well, you know, 
if you imagine the the sort of counterfactual where the UK has had played its diplomatic cards much better uh, and arrived at a position where it was saying, well, I'll tell you what, how about single market in goods, mm. uh, a little bit of capacity on services, the, the sort of deal on free movement that you almost gave David Cameron but didn't in his renegotiation. You know, we get to, we're basically a rule taker. We'll pay you a bunch of money. It's basically good for you because you've got the surplus in goods. That's actually that's kind of win for you. We get something called mm. Brexit. We get notional freedom. It's actually a pretty good deal. If they could have articulated that proposition better, then the EU side would have been in, in a much stickier position. They would have found it. A lot of member states would have found it yeah, quite, quite hard to say no. Quite, quite would, an attractive you know, the Dutch and the offer. Germans. Yeah. A lot of people would be saying, "Well, let's take this. This yeah. isn't actually a bad deal for us." Um, the problem is the, yeah, the 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 scorching evaporation of goodwill <laughs> uh, and the total absence of political bandwidth on the EU side. Because, as Jennifer mentioned, you know, dealing with the migration crisis, mm. you've got this new government in Italy, mm. uh, third biggest country in the eurozone, absolute nightmare in mm. terms of just administrating the whole project uh but yeah as someone an official said to me very recently that the, the sort of the depressing thing about this from a uk official point of view is that seen from brussels brexit's the thing that's going quite well for the <laughs> okay. eu because at least there is a system <laughs> yeah yes yeah it's locked into something there is a, there, yeah. there's a method there's a, it's working in a 27 or speak as well there's a path to be followed yeah. yes okay um let us look forward a little bit. We are heading into the quiet summer months. Both parliaments, Brussels and Westminster, are going to recess, as I said, in a fortnight's time or so. How are things going to move on, or are they going to move on at all over the summer, Jennifer? Uh, I mean, Brussels presumably goes pretty much into summer hibernation like most of the continent, doesn't it? And there's precious little, as you said, preoccupation with Brexit anyway. Nothing much is going to happen in July and August, is it? Is it? Yes, I think people here are more sort of um, more anxious about a potential political crisis over migration during the summer than Brexit. But nonetheless, the, the wheels on Brexit will keep turning and uh, the, the officials who work on Brexit are at pains to stress they won't all be disappearing to the beach for a month. And, and I think the, the technical talks... Uh, will continue, but we won't see perhaps we won't see much on a on a political front. And I think now the expectations are, are really looking to uh, October, which will be a really. I mean, we we, we have the, the cliche um, the crunch time, which we which is overused, but it will it really will come down to October because at the um, midway through October there will be the next EU summit. Summit the 18th. When I think, isn't when it? this is sort yeah. of penciled in as the moment when when the Brexit deal should happen. Is there any, sorry, interrupt, is there any leeway after that at all? I mean, you know, two or three weeks of... of well, I potential. think there is, actually, because people here, it hasn't gone unnoticed that that summit comes very hard on the heels of the Conservative Party conference. There's about a two and a half week difference. And, and again, people are just not sure whether Theresa May will be in a position to make the compromises. And, and people, I think, mentally... There's already a November Brexit summit being penciled into <laughs> to people's minds and even <laughs> suggestions that perhaps it will happen in December at that sort of final summit of the year, which is on the on the calendar. But I think we, it's it's hard to see how it would go beyond this year because Just there is the a very hard legal stop yeah. on the 29th of March next year. And then you, you do have to jump over a number of hoops sort of getting the text uh, sort of cleared by lawyers and linguists and translated into into all the EU's official languages. So 
So I think the end of this year, the final, um, the final three months will be crucial. Probably there will be slippage, um, as there always is in, in Brussels. So I think October, November, these will, these will really be the, the decisive moments for Brexit. OK. And Raphael, then finally, um, you know, you, you, you said there will be at some stage be a political crisis inevitably. Is it going to come over the summer? Uh, well, the interesting thing about summer is obviously well, the MPs aren't in Parliament and aren't around. And that actually gives it sort of gives number 10 a bit of breathing space, because if the MPs aren't all kind of gathering together in the bars and in the tea mm. rooms, they're not conspiring. <laughs> uh, although it does also give you know, people opportunities to try and, and get in the headlines because it gets a bit quite it gets silly season, which um, has increasingly morphed into kind of stupid, angry season. Um, so there'll be a bit of that. I do think ultimately, though, you really it just comes down to this question of there is no visible bridge now between Mm. a Brexit that is available through the negotiation as it's currently formulated in Brussels Mm. and what domestically Theresa May can get past the Conservative Party in one piece. And so at some point, something's going to have to snap. Now, what that looks like, it's hard to say. I mean, people obviously speculate about the general election which always tends to happen just because if people can't think of anything else that will change, then that's, that's going sort of, to be an election. That's your yeah. go-to way of, sort of detonating <laughs> yes. everything. Yeah. It's, it's like a sort of, I don't know, sort of Van de Graaff generator. If it sort of builds up enough negative irons at some point, the spark will leap and, yeah. uh, and, and something will change. A, a not impossible scenario also is, is an extraordinary one where you get a vote of no confidence in Theresa May as leader of the Conservative Party, uh, triggered by angry Tory mm. MPs, which she then wins. Um, and so she is then reinstalled. Comes out even stronger then. Comes out story. Or, or better still, you get a vote of no confidence in the prime minister, which then triggers a vote of no confidence in the government, which she somehow wins. You know, so you, 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 there are all sorts of ways you can, where you can get yeah. to the brink. It, ultimately, as I said earlier, it will come down to the question of how many fundamentalists there are who in, in the Conservative Party who care about nothing other than the hardest possible Brexit. And my gut still is that there are fewer of them than a lot of them are all talk. OK. All right. Well, we shall see. That's about it then for this week. And for a while, in fact, Brexit means is itself going to be taking a bit of a summer break. But we'll be back in a slightly new format, I think, in September. In the meantime, our sister podcast, Politics Weekly, will be keeping you up to date with any and all Brexit related developments through the summer. And do feel free, please, to email us whenever you like at Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. My thanks to Jennifer and Raphael for joining me. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Means. And thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 